be looking at Matthew chapter 22. We're going to read verses 15 through the end of the chapter again as we take the third and fourth questions of the four questions I got for you. If you weren't here last week, I will give you a brief uh, summary of those questions. Just to, so you know the context in terms of Matthew's telling of the story, in Matthew chapter 21 you have the well-known episode of Jesus entering into Jerusalem riding upon a donkey. And then there's the uh, some episodes there in Jerusalem that cause people to um, question him about his authority. Then Matthew then deals with the question of how do we rightly recognize and respond to that authority. And then here in chapter 22, Matthew recounts for us um, four uh, foundational questions that are necessary for us to be constantly revisiting and constantly uh, thinking about, constantly engaging with, if we are going to live faithfully as his disciples, as citizens in his kingdom, even as we sojourn among kingdoms of the world. So that's where we are uh, in our walk through Matthew. Read with me. Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. So tell us then, what you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought to him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render or give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all... The woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what, it, what was said to you by God? I am, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, So what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, Why, the son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us today that we may feed upon it, that we may walk faithfully as his disciples in this world. Let's go to him in prayer then. So, Father, we pray as we come to this time and this hour that you have set aside, to this your word that you by your spirit have given to us and have preserved for us, even the word of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that by that same spirit, you would grant us eyes to see it, ears to hear it, hearts to to leap with joy in celebration of it, that we might rest in it, rejoice in it, and be changed by it. So, Father, we pray that you would feed us on that truth and protect us from error, and that you would be glorified, for we pray it in Jesus. Amen. So just by way of reminder... Matthew is interested in us knowing the good news. The good news is that the promised king has come. The promised kingdom, therefore, has come. And his name is Jesus. That's what Matthew is very interested in us knowing. The reason he's interested in us knowing that is because that point is a point that is the dividing line between life and death. Knowing the king, rightly knowing the king, rightly responding to the king, rightly walking with the king. In chapter 21, the king now has arrived and he comes on a donkey and it is a prophetic image That the king has arrived to make peace. He comes riding into Jerusalem saying, I am here, the peace-making king. But he doesn't act as we might expect like a peace-making king does. He immediately goes to the temple and wreaks havoc in the temple. And so we talked about he being the king of peace, and of purity, and of justice. If he is the king, 
if by faith rightly exercised, we recognize him as the king. If that means then that in answer to the prayer that we are taught to pray that his kingdom has come and his will is being done upon the earth as it is in heaven, then what does it mean for us to live faithfully as citizens of that coming kingdom even as we sojourn among kingdoms of the world that are passing away? That's a hard place to be. We need help. We need help to structure our lives, to think about our lives, and to order our lives accordingly. And so Matthew has um, organized his story, the story of the king's arrival, and his story of our life in that kingdom in order for us to deal with these four questions. You might remember from last week that... um, on the night before Passover, known as the Haggadah in tradition, the child, there are four questions that are asked. Children ask three questions, and then the father asks one question. And in some traditions, or at least some interpretations of that, those questions fall into set categories. One is the legal question, one is the mocking question, one is the simple or basic or foundational question, and then one is the question of the father to the children that helps them tie it all together. Yesterday, last week, we looked at the legal question, whether or not it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. And we looked at the question of uh, the scoffing, mocking question, because the Sadducees come to mock Jesus and ask about the resurrection, about the power of God and the limits of God's power, whether or not it extends even beyond the grave. It's important. It's kind of like the Jewish version of catechism, right? We have these catechisms that are designed to help us think rightly and understand rightly the life that we are called to. So what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to enjoy God and glorify him forever. And it goes on. The Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And so the questions go, and the idea is that as we go back and forth with these questions and these answers, our our minds are shaped, our souls are shaped, our spirits are shaped and guided. So today we're going to get to the second two of these four questions. We're going to begin with this basic question, this foundational question. Um, So some of you know that, of course, um, I'm not um, a contractor. I am not skilled that way, but I've always loved it. I love the idea of building. And so I've decided, you know what, I'm going to do it. And so I Googled it. You can do anything now with Google. And so I learned um, just this week, I learned um, how to um, lay a foundation And so, um, lesson one done, and I'm on. I Googled it. I mean, it's right there. Four steps or seven steps to laying a foundation. So, I'm available if any of you guys need extra hands on the the site. You can Google anything. 
And he'd become an expert. One of the things I did learn, however, about the foundation is that you, you pick out a site. You have to have a site. And then you, you identify, you locate the four corners of your foundation. And you have to work from there. You can't just start like I did when I was little, digging a trench and pouring a bunch of rubble down in it. You have to know where the four corners are. And that's what these four questions are doing for us. If we want to actually build a life of faithfulness in the kingdoms of this world, we need to know where the four corners are going to be. We need to know how do we, by faith, rightly relate to power and authority in this world. We need to know, by faith, what are our time limits, or lack thereof. Because it shapes the way we go about our decision-making. We need to know who is who. And we need to know how to rightly relate to one another. We need to know our king. And so this third question comes up. It's this very simple, this very basic, this very foundational question. Jesus, what is the great commandment in the law? Other uh, gospels have it, which is the greatest commandment? And some of your translations even may have that here in Matthew. Teacher, what is the great commandment? What is the great commandment? We want to know, what is that one thing that we have to keep an eye on? We love this answer. He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's an interesting answer, actually, because it does not come from the Decalogue. What we know is the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. It doesn't come from there. It actually comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, one of the sermons that Moses is preaching just before Israel goes into the promised land. And in that passage, he's saying, Israel, listen, hear me, the Lord, your God, is one. You shall love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Jesus or Matthew says it here, with all your mind. That's the first and great commandment. It doesn't come from the Decalogue. But we love that. Especially as individualistic, privatistic, personal North Americans that we are, we love it. Because we like to focus on loving God with all our heart, mind, and soul. And so we go out into the wilderness where we're not distracted by people so that we can enter into unhindered fellowship with a triune God of love. After all, it's the first and great commandment. We have to get our priorities in order. And so we focus on that. I'm focusing on loving God, so get out of my way. 
You ever get caught in traffic on your way to church? Isn't that the worst? Get out of my way! I'm going to church to worship the God of love! And then we get here. We can't even get through the front door because people are talking. Get out of my way! I'm going to worship the God of love and patience and grace. Bless your heart. But Jesus goes on. They didn't ask for this. And so the question is this. Well, Jesus goes on. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend or hang all of the law and the prophets. It's like, Jesus, come on. We asked you for one. He's giving one. Our tendency is to say, I could really, really enjoy my relationship with God if it weren't for all the people around me. But what Jesus is saying is, it is in your love for the people around you that you come to know the love of the Father. You could look at it from the opposite direction. Do you want to know the quantity, the nature, the quality of your love for the Father? Look at your love for your neighbor. And you'll remember that a couple places in the Gospels, there's that, that really irritating story in answer to the question, so who is my neighbor? <laughs> Our neighbor is those we find in front of us, whether we like them or not, whether our culture tells us we should be liking them or not. Jesus is not giving us a choice here. The one command actually enlightens or defines the other. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul? What does it mean to love the God of superabounding love for people who are steadfastly rebellious and sworn enemies with all of our heart, mind, and soul strength. If we are to love that kind of God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then it means that we are growing to love our neighbor, even our Samaritan neighbors, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Jesus uses language here, Matthew uses language here in his telling of the story, saying that Jesus said, a second is like it. It's a simple enough word. But we find it used throughout the Gospels, primarily when Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is like. What he is saying is that there is an organic connection 
between the flowers of the field and the birds of the air and the nature of the king and his kingdom. There's an organic connection. It's inseparable. We can't say, I'm concentrating on loving God, so please get out of my way. We can't divide it up like that. One informs the other. You can't focus on one without focusing on the other. Because they're bound together. The nature of the triune God's love is to be loving (laughs) one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and their sworn enemies. The reason that Jesus adds this here is because if we only focus on one, we will necessarily get it wrong. Because they fit together. Is not merely an enumeration. He's not nearly, merely saying, okay, checklist number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. Checklist number two, love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting because the second one, the second commandment, comes from Leviticus chapter 19. The second one doesn't even come from the Decalogue. And some of you might remember what Leviticus chapter 19 is about. Leviticus chapter 19 is all about being holy. And the summary statement of, of Leviticus chapter 19 is, in this way you shall love your neighbor As yourself. Because in learning to love our neighbors, we are learning to know and to grow in and to be shaped by the very holiness of the triune God himself. He's not just saying number one and number two. He's actually saying that if you if your mind is focused on number one, it will necessarily manifest in number two. If it is not manifesting in number two, it means we're not rightly apprehending number one. So this is the logic that tells me that whenever I speak angrily with a friend or a neighbor, whether they hear me or not, I'm in my car, Idiot. Not that I've done that, but I've, I've heard others do it. <laughs> it says more about me than it does about that person. It says more about the nature and the quality of my knowledge of God than it says about that person. And so you get the humor, of course, of cussing fellow travelers on your way to worship the God of love. You're not on your way to worship the God of love. You see, because they go together. And it's as we meditate on how these two things fit together that our mind actually is reordered. Our heart actually is reordered. When I come to realize that, that, that speaking impatiently or hatefully to my neighbor is actually a reflection of what I believe about my God, it changes me. 
and shapes me, we pray, more and more into the image of that God. And so Jesus says, as he comes to the fourth question, he says, let's put this all in perspective. Let's tie it all together. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? The Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew version of the Messiah, the long-promised one, the promised um, uh, descendant of David who would come and establish the great promised shalom, the peace for all the earth. Whose son is he? They said, well, the son of David, which is not a problem for them. Because you have to understand, in their mind, the, the king is a king. But Jesus uses this language here from the psalm about Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my, your enemies under your feet. So the question is, the son is always less than the father in the Hebrew mind. Right? The, the son is always derivative of the father in the Hebrew mind. And so it makes zero sense in the Hebrew mind, upon reflection, that King David, the preeminent king in Israel's history, would actually say to his son that you are the preeminent one. That you are my Lord. How is that even possible? Well, given the Hebrew mindset, that puts them in a difficult spot. Because it's nigh unto blasphemous for them to actually say that David acknowledges that his son is in fact the promised and preeminent one. If David calls him Lord, how then is he his son? And of course, they're confubbled and they don't know how to answer. We have something similar. Back when I was growing up, and um, there was this big thing going on uh, when I was in high school, college, there was this big thing going on in evangelical circles about um, the so-called carnal Christian. Perhaps some of you are familiar with it. And um, the idea of the carnal Christian is, is someone who professes belief in Jesus Christ and yet um, their lifestyle continues on unchanged. This is a carnal Christian. Of course, theologically we understand there's no such category. And so the way it would often manifest in conversation is, well, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, but I haven't accepted Him as my Lord. You've heard those conversations. And so... Sometimes you'd find the conversation developing in terms of this sort of two-step conversion process. Well, I accepted him as Savior way back then, but I haven't accepted him as Lord yet. I'll accept him as Lord today. So the reason that such thinking gains traction is because there are there are actually patterns in the world that look like that's what's happening. And especially here in the South, there are patterns in the world that look like that. Because after all, 
Who in the South doesn't know Jesus? That's what it means to be Southern. We all know Jesus. We just don't know him as Lord. And Jesus is addressing that issue here. And Matthew is addressing that issue here because what he is saying is the reigning one is the loving one. The transcendent one is the with us one. The king is the savior. You say you know Jesus as savior but not as lord then you do not know Jesus. If you say you know Jesus as Lord, but not as Savior, you do not know Jesus. Because it goes together. It's one thing. Remember, Jesus is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There in the flesh we beheld His glory, the glory as of the Father, there dwelling among us. Because the glory of the God that we worship is that he delights to dwell among us. It's a stunning thing. Just this morning I was reading in the psalm. The psalmist declares the glory of God who, who looks down upon the heavens. This God that we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Creator, Sustainer, God. He looks down upon the multitude of the galaxies as though it's a model railroad. That's the God that we worship. That's the transcendent one. That is the preeminent one. And in the next line, the psalmist says, you delight to reach down and pick up the poor, the lowliest, the least, the lonely. That is the stunning glory of the God we worship. Unlike the God of Islam, he is not a distant God, but his glory, the glory of this transcendent preeminent one is that he delights to dwell among his people. That's the love of the Father that manifests in the love of his people, you see. We say we are worshiping this transcendent one as Lord and as King and as Messiah and as the one in whom and by whom and for whom all things were made, sustained, and even now being redeemed. And yet we do not know him as the one who delights to dwell with us. Then we do not know the God of the Bible.
These are the four questions that help us know where we fit and how we fit and how to build our lives, a lives of faithfulness, faithful followers of Jesus Christ in the kingdoms of this world, profane, cynical kingdoms of this world. When we know the Christ as the one who delights to dwell with us, the preeminent one as the one who delights to take on flesh and meet us at the table to share bread and wine together. Then we know how we relate to the powers and principalities of this world. How we relate to all the time limits that our world places upon us. How to love one another. How to walk with the king and worship the king as his people. Men, women, children. Bumping into each other, learning to love one another, because that's what the worship of the triune God feels like. So, Father God, we come.